0: You're listening to The Sill Podcast. Perspectives on Art and Technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 39. My Life Has Value. Rethinking Populism. We recording? No, it's a steaming. It's steaming. Steaming up. Can you see that? Yeah, I can see it.
1: Oh, we actually recording? Yeah. The answer is yes. <laughs> okay, well, indeed, then I can see that steam, and it's a <laughs> uh, boy that I can smell that. I mean, you couldn't see the steam I, if we I, weren't recording. I couldn't see the steam before we were recording, but now that we're recording, I can see the steam, <laughs> and I can smell the good old Hockley Valley coffee. Mm. Oh yeah. Uh, who, incidentally, um. are a sponsor? One of the sponsors for the poetry festival coming up in Orangeville on um. May the fifth. Day of the Poets. Oh,
0: now you're pulling a smooth one on Maybe me. you a, a, a plug. It's a subtle way of plugging
1: a, a, a little baby of mine. <laughs> so the, May 5th? Uh, May 5th, Orangeville, Ontario, downtown from 11 to 4 p.m. Twenty poets are going to be there doing readings, wandering the streets, infesting the air with their rhymy, versy words. The place is going to be <laughs> lousy with poets. I understand their it's quite a populist group. It is. Well, no, actually, they would be considered an elitist group oh, when you think about group. poetry. Okay. Just a very few people read poetry. Right. And uh, so I think they would be considered elitist. But we're talking about populism. But we, we know poets aren't elitist. Well, some. The way the use of language, uh, they mm. would poo-poo some of the spoken word poetry. That's well, you out just used the
0: word poo-poo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm not one of them. That's showing you that I use the language of the common man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, populism and elitism, the isms. The isms. Uh, and populism is generally associated with ordinary people. Well, that's what it means. It's supposed right. to be the common man. Whatever that means. Il popolo. Il popolo. So, question is, what the hell does that mean? What's the delineator? Well, here's something that's interesting. So,
0: really the origins, or the modern origins, were around the 1890s in the U.S. Okay. And it was really established to pit the so-called rural Democratic Party against the urban Republicans. Thinking about the distribution of the population back in the 1890s, where the majority of people were living in rural areas, urbanization was not yet at the level that it is today. Mm -hmm. Which, interestingly, the Democratic Party represented the rural party. Uh
1: Aha, interesting how things switch around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the question now becomes, who in fact is the common man? Right, yeah. Yeah. Just before coming here today to record this with you, I decided to dial up famous populist speeches on Google. And one of them came up with Teddy Roosevelt, Mm -hmm. who gave a speech, I forgot the date exactly, but early in the century, in the 20th century. He had just been shot. Somebody shot him. He had his speech in his breast pocket. It slowed the bullet down enough that it, the bullet went into him but didn't cause grave injury, but the bullet was in him and he was doing the speech. So he's giving this populist speech about people coming together. This is the progressive party he was promoting. Mm-hmm. Not the Democrat, not the Republican, a party called the Progressive We're Party. We're talking
0: early 1900s. Yeah. Teddy that's right. Roosevelt.
1: Teddy Roosevelt. And he was saying things like We have to prevent a war between the haves and the have-nots. Like all of these things he was saying back then are really applicable today. When you think about how we've become polarized between the so-called haves, the have-nots, the elites, the common man, all of these words, the lingo that's used to polarize Mm -hmm. society in the service of political gain.
0: Right, and, and along those lines, typically, at least in its original state, populism really represented in a form democracy. Yeah, sure. You would think, then, that that definition would adhere to that across the board, but it doesn't because, in, in essence, for example, Donald Trump, he's considered populist and he's actually also considered anti-democratic.
1: And he's one of the elites when you look at the mm-hmm. definition of populism. Mm-hmm. So here's a, an elite convincing the common man, unquote, that he is the guy to make America great again, mm-hmm. and saying he's going to rid Washington, to clean the swamp, to get the corruption out, in these fat cats who are making it, and he's one of them. The hypocrisy is so in front of everybody's eyes that nobody actually could see it, except those who voted against him.
0: Right, But lots couldn't see it. So we're in fact Do we stand with populism? Is it really representative
1: of any one specific group or is it a collective kind of mentality that may shift? I think it's a meaningless term, to be honest with you, because the very people, say, who voted for Trump, if you bore down more deeply into the issues that they're interested in, you probably find great differences within that population. Yes. So it's not like it's one mind and one voice, Vox Populi, you -hmm, know, mm -hmm. it, it isn't. It's many, many voices, many concerns and directions and lobbyists. But because of the way the political system is set up, it has to simplify itself into vote this way or that way. So it's a meaningless term that is being used by politicians who then employ the use of technology Mm -hmm. to get their slogans... Mass communication. Mass communicated on all these social platforms. Mm -hmm. And it seems... Other countries are getting involved in other people's elections through technological means, namely the Russians, for example. Yes. So, where is their democracy anymore that's clear and crisp and clean? Mm-hmm. It isn't. It's all muddied. Yes, the confusion reigns. Total confusion. Which increases the mistrust. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The people who voted for Trump, for example, when do they turn around and go, oh, my God, this was a big mistake? But I think the issue
0: remains as to what's the alternative. I think that's the problem. If you're going to oust someone, who are you going to put in to replace? And the question remains, for most people, there's a lot of doubt as to who
1: can replace. George Carlin said it well. Basically, he said, to paraphrase him, there is no difference between a Republican or a Democrat or whoever in power, it makes Mm. no difference. It's the setup, it's the system, it's the way it's run. Mm -hmm. So I would say that the change has to be in the way government operates once any party is in power. I'm one of those people who
0: is of the opinion that relying or hoping that government will change their way or system is not the approach that I would take. Ultimately, that's what everyone hopes for. But I think, you know, and it's kind of ironic in a way, because the word populism, which comes from the word public Mm -hmm. or masses, they're the ones that have to create the change in order for government to change. They have to change their approach to things. They have to change, they have to re-examine their values. They have to re-examine what's important to them in order to get politicians steered in a different direction because I don't think government's going to
1: do it. But you know, what you're talking about in a sense is revolution. Yes. And, and, but if you think about it, revolution always galvanizes around a particular figure, a charismatic figure mm-hmm. of some sort. So it doesn't matter what we're doing to try to make a change. We're always looking for that figure who can represent what we feel is right so once the revolution happens, then that person is the right. new leader.
0: But that's the way we've always done it. Exactly. So what I'm suggesting is now is the time perhaps for a different approach, not relying on one individual, but relying on a movement, a group of people, a group of leaders, not one. I, don't, I think those days are kind of biased because you need trust in a system to do that. You, yeah. you have to have someone that you can really confide in yeah. in order to do that. I use this analogy uh, with the um, movement in the U.S., segregation and so on, with Martin Luther King. One of the things that they learned from his assassination was that it was a mistake to put all their weight behind one man, because with his death, yeah, the entire system almost collapsed. So he was an easy target to bring down the system. Had there been a half dozen Martin Luther Kings pushing the same message, it would have been much
1: more difficult. Mm-hmm. To stop the civil rights movement, which mm-hmm. is what you're talking about, bringing yes. the civil rights yes. movement down. Yes.
0: So what I'm suggesting is that people themselves have to rely more on themselves yeah. and collectively begin to do things. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately
1: politicians will bend to the will of the people or they won't get reelected. Yeah, and you know, conservatives do have some good ideas. Mm-hmm. And one of the ideas that conservatives, I often hear from conservatives, is that we have too much government in every part of society. Mm. Too much government interference. And on that level, I actually agree in many ways. If you shut the government down, aside from the security side of the government, Mm -hmm. the police and all that stuff, but if you shut everything else down, Mm -hmm. we would just continue in our daily life. We would still go to the store, and buy the pack of cigarettes or the whatever, the food and the shopping. we go to the library. we do everything we'd normally do. Right, but what you just said about the Conservative Party, to me, addresses what I'm
0: also talking about. The Conservatives say, too much government. Well, that's a very broad statement. Yeah. You can say, too much of the wrong government, or we're too heavy on this end. And also, the listener has to not take that verbatim. Both sides need to be more flexible. And you've got to stop with this conservative and Democrat battle. It yeah. has to be, look, we both have things to offer. Let's open up a discussion. Yeah. You know, Let's at least get to the point where we're talking to each other and then go from there. And, and this is the kind of example that the public requires as well. And so what I'm suggesting is if the government is not giving it to you as an example, you begin to give it to them.
1: Yeah, exactly. If, for those of you uh, listening out there, Peter made the Fungu sign with his elbow and the old fist coming up. Uh, yeah, uh, what's his name? Um, I forgot his first name in the movie Network. Howard, oh, yeah, Peter Howard, Finch. Howard Beale. Okay, I the, character, the actor, the actor, the actor Pe- Peter Finch. Peter Finch, who plays right. his character, Howard Beale, mm-hmm. makes this brilliant speech oh, written, it was great. written by Paddy Chayefsky, the screenwriter. Uh, the Mad as Hell. Uh, speech. I'm not going to take it I anymore. I want you to get up and stand up and open your windows and yell, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. Get up, get up out of your seats. So powerful and so right on. And that movie is actually a great statement on populism, too, because it implicates the media mm-hmm. in promoting Kind of evangelical leaders and charismatic leaders, and who rather than newscasters, they should be personalities that entertain and that 's a very modern idea. Yes. Right? Which has really corrupted the media in many ways. For sure. So that movie really speaks to populism in so many ways. It's quite brilliant. and Maybe it's my most favorite film. Well, considering I
0: believe it was 1976.
1: Yes, 76. 76. Faye Dunaway, Bill Holden, uh, Peter Finch, great casting. Robert Duval is in it as well.
0: It impacted me greatly when I watched that scene. I, I thought it was superb. I get goosebumps. I yeah, really from watch so many angles. But would you have guessed back then? I mean, we're talking at a time here where you're in your early to mid 20s. Mm-hmm. Would you have guessed how prophetic?
1: Well, no. That Although, would I mean, didn't Ronald Reagan come into power shortly thereafter? Yes, 1980. Yeah, 79, 80, somewhere around mm-hmm. there. So, yeah, in prophetic in the sense of what we see today in the media, for example, mm-hmm. and in the feeling that a lot of people have, which is we're mad as hell. And maybe we could include that actual speech in our box box. Oh, yeah. Today. Let's give people a, a sense of the power of that speech. Absolutely. Let's do it. Yeah, and we'll come back to the discussion right after this. Okay.
0: Box, box box. So, what's your story?
2: I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. Open it and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Fox,
1: Fox, Fox. we're back. <laughs> now. Mm-hmm. So what else would you like to say about populism? Well, I already discussed the kind of
0: antithesis of definition versus what's actually happening today. For example, when you equate populism with democracy and then you have a very anti Democratic party in power. Yeah. So even words that used to stand for something, you can't even rely on that
1: mm-hmm. anymore
0: because they're being manipulated and changed and flexed to fit whatever the agenda is.
1: Like the words great and tremendous are wow. now words that I don't think I want to ever use again <laughs> <laughs> in my life. Never again will I use the word great or tremendous. The word glib is too mild. <laughs> But that's how populations Mm -hmm. have been manipulated throughout time, it seems. From Hitler's Mm -hmm. day, right? Mm -hmm. He manipulated the population. Stalin, Mussolini, all of them. Absolutely. You make some gross general statements that sound amazing. Ah, but timing is the critical part. You see, they make
0: these statements at a time when people are down and they're looking for a savior. Yeah. And no one's going to pull you out of this thing without your help. Yeah, that's true. You're giving them power. Mm-hmm. When I say them, whoever takes the reins and uses it or manipulates it. And typically it's it's the affluent and people who have a lot of uh, pull yeah. and connections. And then they sit down and while everyone is panicking, they calmly sit in their overview cabin
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and plan. So, I mean, is it useful to point those people out? as the enemy, quote-unquote, that we have to kind of deal with, break down, make equal to us. Like, this whole idea of the elite and the common man and the polarization implies that there's never really a compromise, a place where they can both, mm-hmm. elites and non-elites, sit down and have a civil conversation In which everybody agrees this is the right or wrong thing to do. Well, it's pretty tough to have a conversation along those lines when we're standing on very different levels.
0: You and I, we can have very, very different approaches to living, even completely opposite political views. But if we go to those things that we have in common, i.e., you have children, I have children, or family connections, those things that we both can understand.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, young people, although we kind of, we older folks tend to, put them down in some ways as being kind of a lost generation. They're actually lost in a good sense in some ways, in that they're not caught up so much Mm -hmm. in this elite versus non-elite business. They're busy doing their own thing, trying to understand life and make sense of it, you know, without attaching themselves too powerfully to any one movement or Mm -hmm. society or group It seems to me. So they're more individualized in many ways, even though they're caught up in the thrall of technology in Mm -hmm. very much the same way. They're still very individual, one-on-one. Yeah, and they were born into a
0: very different world than we were born into. They've seen things that we never saw. Um, And in many ways, we were much more complacent as well, only because we didn't think we had too much to worry about. We just went along our merry way. We, We played outside and we did our thing. Yeah. There wasn't that much concern I don't remember it that way anyway. The the world may have been just the way it is today, but I don't remember it that way growing up. It it seemed to me that
1: all problems were solvable and felt very temporary. I think we trusted implicitly in our governments when we were kids, much more than now, when everyone is cynical. Well, we we trusted the vibes we got from our parents and our family members. And they trusted the government for the most part to do what they said they would do. That's gone now. And I think young people don't trust or not trust. They're just not connected to it. They just emotionally they don't feel compelled to be part of that, except in the sense of you know this march that happened recently on Washington mm-hmm. by high school kids against uh, guns against guns mm-hmm. and working for gun control, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's a very powerful and positive sign there, mm-hmm. and that's the voice of the people in a way uh, when you can organize. That many people to do a march, to make a statement, mm-hmm. that's a voice. That's powerful.
0: Yeah, and I think yeah. our generation underestimates their capability in terms of, yeah, you know, they may not have life experience, but their access to information dwarfed our access completely.
1: Yeah, and their lack of life experience is an advantage because, Can be. you know, they're not as used to the buffoonery and all this stuff that goes on and calls itself politics. They're you know, not as jaded. They're not as connected to it and as reliant upon it. Yeah, they can say, you know what, this is bullshit. We'll, we'll find our own way. We'll let this older generation die off. It's, mm-hmm. it, and I often get the feeling that they're just waiting for the old generation. to just kind of die away so that they can do their own thing, whatever that's going to be.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they'll have their own corrections to make uh, like we did um, yeah. because life experience will teach you things that no amount of books or information will teach you.
1: Well, all they have to do is ask Siri if they yeah. trouble.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Siri knows all. Was, you, know, you know who should have had Siri? Johnny Carson.
1: <laughs> Great, Karnak. Karnak. Karnak the Magnificent.
0: Karnak, Karnak the Magnificent. That's if he it. had Siri, can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it may be that the arts has to play a role. Arts often does. And, well, I think arts always um, have to play a you role. No, I think about George Orwell. I think about 1984. Mm-hmm. That book being prophetic also. And a real kind of warning. Big Brother is watching you. Like these ideas that the artists bring forth can reach people in different ways and in more uh, intimate and powerful ways than a political statement about this or that or, you know, mm-hmm. make America great again. And if you looked at
0: the history of movies, even over your lifetime, there are plenty of indicators 10, 15, 20 years ahead of time. And these are all artists who are working on the present and extrapolating the future and creating their movies and books Mm -hmm. according to those thoughts
1: and ideas. Yeah. Meet John Doe. Meet John Doe. Meet John Doe, example of a great black and white film, Mm -hmm. Um, Gary Cooper. Yeah. And Barbara Stanwyck Mm -hmm. and other great actors in it. When he's this kind of uh, hick, Mm -hmm. a baseball playing hick that they put out to run for governor or something. The Ordinary Guy. The Ordinary Guy, yeah. They put him as the Ordinary Guy, Gum chew and Hick from Whereverville, and showing the corruption and the manipulation in politics mm-hmm. in those days, which still exists. And this right? is 40s and 50s, right? That's right. That's when it came out. Another great film.
0: If I were to ask you, based on this discussion, if anything comes to mind, the single most way of thinking or process that you think needs to change in order to even to begin to change the way things are
1: going? I think we have to discount all the isms, Mm -hmm. which I think young people do anyway, naturally now. We have to look at all those isms, everything we've taken for granted. We have to do what Nietzsche did to reevaluate all of our values. And see which ones are just relics of an old age which are no longer suitable, which ones are illusions or delusions about life, and which ones are not. And begin to reconfigure how we see the world, how we treat our fellow human beings, and then change the electoral process and governmental process based upon the new human being that comes out of that process.
0: I totally agree. So let me give you a kicker here to close this. This was something I read the other day, which kind of blew me away. One in three Americans would give up their right to vote for a pay increase. (laughs) (laughs) Think about that. Think about that. Think think about the ramification
1: of that kind of thinking. One in three. yeah. Yeah. That's 100 million people plus. Well, and also ideas. Probably one in three Americans if I'm not mistaken, haven't read a book in the past year when asked, haven't read a single book. Mm. We're talking about people who are not connected to the world of ideas and deep thinking about things, all on the surface. So to expect them to come up with the change and to be the change you want to be, quote unquote, yeah, yeah. is asking an awful lot. Oh, no, it's, it, not, it's going not, not going to happen. That's not going to happen there. Right? No. So it's going to be the younger generation that comes up, mm-hmm. and they can recreate the world and they can become a more enlightened populi in the future, I think.
0: The Sill Podcast Perspectives on Art and Technology is a Connecting Dance Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. The Sill Podcast,